He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump. And now, he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the My stomach turns when I look, when I watch the scenes that are emerging from Afghanistan. And it's going to be even worse when, uh, it, when this whole thing plays out and the Taliban actually occupies the embassy in the whole green zone area in, in Kabul. Uh, this is just horrible. It's completely reminiscent. People are saying it's reminiscent of Obama's withdrawal from Iraq. Well, that, it wasn't. Obama's withdrawal from Iraq was was wrong, it was ill-executed and problems, and it spawned ISIS, and that, and then Trump took care of ISIS. But it's reminiscent of Vietnam, uh, the helicopter evacuation from the top of the embassy, with a guy holding on to the skids of the helicopter as it pulled away. That was as vivid a metaphor of American appeasement, American weakness, American timidity, as the fall of the Berlin Wall was, of Russian and Soviet oppression. Uh, the, those metaphors, the helicopter and the wall, are really all you need to know about the Cold War and the fight between freedom and communism. And uh, now we're giving an updated lesson in that in Kabul. And there are 3,000 American soldiers who died in Afghanistan. 3,000. Now, it's not the 58,000 that died in Vietnam or the... 46,000 that died in Korea. But, oh my God, it's a lot, of, a lot of people. Unbelievable. And their death now is absolutely, totally in vain. The, this, the fall of Afghanistan, the tumbling down of Afghanistan, is something we're witnessing now. Tumbling down. Let me spend a second going through why we got in Afghanistan in the first place and why it was important. The way to look at terrorism in the world today is a little bit like HIV virus. It swims around in your bloodstream and it can give you AIDS, but it can't give it to you unless it attaches to a cell. So the virus swims around, it's there in your bloodstream, constantly looking for cells to accommodate it. And when it can reach a cell, when it can reach into a cell, put its feelers in it, uh, then it can put its DNA in there and you can get AIDS and you can get sick and you can die. The blockers that we have now are designed to stop the membrane, to enforce the membrane between the cell and the virus so the virus can't penetrate the cell. And that's a perfect metaphor for what terrorism does with a country like Afghanistan. If the the if the terrorist country, the host country, Afghanistan, resists the terrorist and doesn't let them in, the Taliban and other you know, ISIS and Al Qaeda, all those are gangs, you know, teenage, grown up teenage gangs, and they uh, they can wreak havoc. They can even fight a war, uh, but they can't attack the United States. They can't foment 
global terror because they lack the ingredients to do it. When you control a country, you control secure borders, every place but the U.S., and uh, the secure borders are give you a, a, a barrier to hide behind, to work behind. You have a navy, you have an air force, you have immigration, you have a customs authorities, you have uh, you have police, you have a population that you can conscript and control, and those are the accoutrements of nationhood that clothe a terrorist gang with the power of a nation. And as such, they can wage war, and they can knock down the Trade Center, and they can try to blow up the Brooklyn Bridge. They can do all of that stuff. They have embassies in every country. They have an intelligence service already operating in every country. And it's a simple matter for them to take over and convert that. Once the terrorist gang penetrates the membrane of the country and occupies it, and that's what the Taliban did with uh, Afghanistan, and that's why we went there. And that's why, if you recall back, if you're old enough, uh, 20 years ago when 9-11 happened, uh, we all were convinced it was the first of many attacks. We were all wondering what had happened the next day. I lived in Manhattan, and I would look up at the sky all the time and see if there was anybody flying over. And um, we all were just waiting for the next shoe to drop on our heads. And uh, didn't happen, and went through year after year, didn't happen, still hasn't happened, and it's because, not, we have to credit the FBI, we have to credit Ray Kelly, the police commissioner of New York, who's fantastic, and, uh, and the Homeland Security folks, but most of the credit goes to the military in taking over Afghanistan, because without that base of operations, they couldn't do it. You can't run it, uh, that kind of complex operation from a radio in a mountaintop. It just doesn't work. So the, that's why we went into Afghanistan, and we are now withdrawing. And get this, we are withdrawing. We will all mourn the 20-year the anniversary of 9-11, maybe on the day the Taliban takes back Kabul. Isn't that incredible? September 11th, 2021 will be the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. And uh, what a juxtaposition of events. And now we're in for it again. Uh, If anybody is naive enough to believe that the Taliban's not going to move right back in and set up a terrorist attack force and come after the U.S., you're, you're really smoking something. Uh, it is clear that the Taliban's about to do that, and it's clear that they can, and it's clear that our failure to keep them at bay in Afghanistan will make that happen. So the 3,000 people who died in Afghanistan, American soldiers, did not die in vain because for 20 years there hasn't been an attack, and there all, all kinds of mayhem could have happened in those 20 years, and they stopped it. But now they're no longer able to stop it, and it's tragic what's going to happen. Absolutely horrible. And there is one single fact. This never would have happened under Donald Trump. Not necessarily because Trump wanted to stay in Afghanistan. He didn't. He wanted to pull out. And he forced the pullout. But he never would have let this happen. Nobody would have done this to the United States if Donald Trump was still in charge. When Trump was negotiating with the Taliban, I know this because I did some consulting with one of the leaders in, the, of the, in Afghanistan, the good guys. And 
Trump was negotiating with the Taliban. And in the middle of the negotiations, they hit an American helicopter, an American troop concentration, killed some people. And uh, Trump immediately bombed the hell out of the Taliban, uh, broke the ceasefire and reignited offensive operations. And the Taliban knew that he was not screwing around. They knew that if they, if they were too blatant, Trump would come in and he would unleash holy hell on them. And uh, they knew that he would do that. And now they know that Joe Biden isn't going to do squat, that Biden is a pathetic, weak, senile, frail man who wasn't that bright to begin with, who opposed taking out bin Laden in the raid that ultimately resulted in his death, opposed it in the National Security Council. He's an appeaser, he's weak, and he is totally incapable of defending this country. And this is example A, number one, number one, number one. And we are going to commiserate this on the anniversary of 9-11. I wonder what the hell he's going to say. What's he going to do when he stands up? Is he going to make some threat? And we will not tolerate terrorism. If there's an act of terrorism, you will suffer the consequences. Yeah, everybody will laugh like hell. Unbelievable. So the number here is 800-848-9222. Uh, 800-848-9222. And uh, give me a call. Now, it's, we, we're going to talk a lot today about the 2022 election, and we're going to talk about the fact that I think the Republicans are going to have a massive, massive victory in that election. Now, I'll go through the reasons, I'll go through the data, and really get you up to speed on it. So feel free to weigh in. Give me a call at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Uh, but if Donald Trump were there, Afghanistan wouldn't have happened. The inflation that he didn't have in his game, his reign wouldn't have happened. The crime rate that stayed down until the George Floyd murder never would have happened. The 218,000 people who poured over the southern border last month in July never would have happened. And all of these never would have happened are piling up. And nobody can dispute that because it didn't happen when Trump was in office less than a year ago. And uh, these problems weren't created instantly. It was just that the, the guy in charge is so weak and so demented that he can't stop it. He can't get his act together to do it. In Afghanistan, it's very clear that the Isaac Newton's first law is applying. A body in motion tends to remain in motion in the same direction, in the same speed as unless he's acted on by an outside force. That is Joe Biden. He was on a path to pull out of Afghanistan. There was no, there was no method of, of, of rear guard action. The hardest thing to do in military war, in warfare is to retreat because you have to cover your retreat with fewer and fewer forces as you're pulling back. And there was just no policy to deal with it. And there was a certainty by the bad guys that there would be no retaliation, that there would be no comeback. Because ultimately, the strength of the leader, it determines the strength of your military. You can't have a weak leader who's going to flinch, who's going to blink, who's not going to take strong action and have a uh, and, and have a strong military and a weak president are a contradiction in terms. They're an oxymoron. They can't exist. This is the Dick Morris Show on 77 WABC. 
It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. And I'm wondering what it is. Donald Trump runs the Republican Party. Donald Trump is in charge. But he really has to purge this party of the various rhinos who inhabit it. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit on this show. Um, I was just having a conversation with a woman who works for Rudy Giuliani named Christina Bob. She's an attorney, and she was here with Rudy, who just was on the air a few minutes ago. And she was telling me that in state after state, particularly in um, Michigan and in Georgia and in Wisconsin, uh, they're blocking an Arizona-style audit, and it's being blocked by the Republicans, not by the Democrats, by the Republicans. In fact, she said that there was a Republican legislator in Michigan who wrote a letter to the Michigan Attorney General, who is a Democrat, saying anyone who's, who's investigating election fraud should be arrested because they're perpetrating a myth that is dangerous that the election was fraudulent. And that's a Republican legislator. And the point is that when Donald Trump took over the Republican Party, it was a hostile takeover. It wasn't a friendly takeover. He was opposed in the primary by, by representatives from every wing of the Republican Party. The establishment wing had Jeb Bush. The conservative wing had, uh, had Ted Cruz. The, um, the liberal wing or moderate wing had John Kasich. Uh, everybody had a candidate in that race. Everybody had a dog in that hunt. And it was Donald Trump defeating them all that led to his takeover of the party, a hostile takeover like on Wall Street. And when he took over, it's a coup d'etat. He, he ousted the top guy. He made himself the top guy. And as president, he was the top guy. But he did not clean house. He did not go up and down the ladder getting rid of the rhinos, getting rid of the people who always opposed him, getting rid of the never-Trumpers. Some of them he even appointed to office. But most of them he didn't, but he didn't go around purging them. And the result is that the party is filled with traitors and, uh, and, and people that don't really believe in Ronald, in, uh, Ronald Reagan, actually, or Donald Trump. And uh, it's one of the weaknesses of Trump that he never did that. People say he's mean and nasty. Well, one of his weaknesses is he was too damn nice to those people. And now that he was cheated out of the election, and now that he's being cheated out of the investigations in some states by Republicans, now he's really got the bit in his teeth, and he's going around really working at purging stuff. He's been very effective in Arizona, and uh, he's revving up his efforts in other states. So have no doubt about who is in charge of the Republican Party. Where'd you meet him? I met him at the candy store. He turned around and smiled at me. You get the picture? Yes, we see. That's when I fell for leader of the pack. Leader of the pack, Donald Trump. And by the way, that pack has a K in it. It's not a political action committee. <laughs> it's a pack. <laughs> And the um, and the rhinos, I don't know, do wolves hunt rhinos? Can a wolf take down a rhinoceros? I don't think so. But maybe a pack of wolves can. 
Yeah. So that's why he's the leader of the pack in going after the rhinos. And it is appalling that the Republicans are blocking an audit in Georgia and in Michigan. And we're blocking it in Arizona when they just got outmaneuvered. So it is incredible to watch that. Um, let me go to uh, Ted in Forest Hills. Hey, Ted. Uh, thank you very much. I want to tell you who President Trump is. He's like Aristotle. He's the master of those who know. Yeah, he well. understands politics. He understands people. He reduced taxes. Does a Nazi reduce taxes so the uh, populace can arm themselves? Yeah, right. Of course. Now, I want to. I want to know if you think that the Democrats are guilty of treason. Um, no, I don't. I think they're guilty of bad judgment. They're guilty of weakness. They're appeased appeasement. Uh, and they're guilty of following their own constituency. If there is treason in the Democratic Party, uh, just look. don't look at the top. Look at the bottom. Look at the electorate. Look at the people who prefer socialism to capitalism in polls. Look at the people who want to defund the police. Um, this is a... This is a treasonous constituency. Uh, but by definition, when a quarter of a country thinks something, it can't be treason against the country because they're part of the country and they count and they're, they're entitled to express their views. So I think that that's barking up the wrong tree. Uh, let's go to Dave in New Jersey. Your comments, I think, about Afghanistan. Hey, Dave. Hey, Dave. Sorry, we don't got Dave. So... Um, Let's go to uh, John in Bergen. Good hey. afternoon, Mr. Morris. I just wanted to comment on uh, something you said before and something we had spoken about two weeks ago. Um, this is a bad week for Joe Biden, but it was a worse week for America. The things that are going on now are not easily undone. What's going on in Afghanistan now is they've taken every single city and they're about to take Kabul. There is nowhere to launch a reinvasion of Afghanistan to go back in there. There is nothing to sanction Afghanistan. You can't sanction heroin. So the only thing they produce is an illegal substance that you can't sanction. The spending we spoke about two weeks ago is the same thing. It's not easily reversible. These things that are going on today and in the past week are going to reverberate for years and decades, and it's really, really setting America back. Boy, that's, that's a brilliant and cogent analysis, John. Uh, you're saying it in foreign affairs. It's also true in domestic affairs. The Democrats are racing to try to pass all this spending because they'll never be repealed. First of all, we'll spend the money. We'll borrow the money. It'll stay on the debt ledger. But secondly, all the entitlements they're voting will never be repealed. You can never repeal an entitlement because you can name the people who are getting the money and they, and they scream like crazy. And by doing this, the... Democrats know they're going to lose in 2022. Uh, they're sure, they, they know they're going to lose the House. They think they might win the Senate, but they know they're going to lose the House. And uh, they're rushing to pass all this stuff because they want to make it permanent. And that clearly is, is why they're doing it. Um, let's go to uh, Shell in Bergen County. Hey, Shell. Hey, Morris. Uh, Morris. Um, first off, I'd like to uh, thank you. I think you've been... Uh, on the market for your influence and uh, judgment during the past administration and, and currently. But before the, the break, you mentioned that 2022 election, you said the Republicans were going to weep. Um, I sort um, I hope so, but I disagree because you sort of touched on it just before with a few of the cool callers. 
because you see time and time again the electorate voting people like the squad. And in certain areas and certain groups, I, I don't see how... Yeah, but those are in districts that, that, that are heavily radical, heavily left, uh, in Minnesota and Michigan, uh, heavily Muslim, and, um, and I think that's why you, you have that. Uh, overall, when you look at what's going on for 2022, and we'll talk about this in the next half hour, you start with the fact that in the generic ballot, who are you going to vote for for Congress, Democrat or Republican, all things being equal, the, Democrat, the Republicans have a two-point lead. And of the five points that are undecided, uh, Pelosi's job approval among that, those voters is 20 favorable, 70 unfavorable. So we'll pick up most of those five points. And historically, if the, party, if the generic party identification is even between the two parties, that means Republicans will pick up about 20 seats because the districts are drawn in such a way that a lot of the Democratic votes are in places like California or New York City where they just stack up the vote and it's got nothing to do with controlling seats. They already won the seat before the first ballot was cast. So the Republicans, I think, based on that polling, are going to be getting 40 to 60 seats in the House. In addition, and bear in mind that the Democrats only have a five-seat margin. If we flip five seats, that's it. And if you go back to 1945... 1940, actually, since the war, um, there have been 30, there have been 40 elections, 40 by-elections in, in off years. 38, in 38 of them, the president's party lost seats. In only two did they gain seats. And uh, we're about to make it 39 where they lose seats. And they have a margin just of five, a paper-thin margin to start with. When we come back, I'm going to talk about the impact of reapportionment, and I'm going to talk about how Nancy Pelosi is playing into our hands. The Nancy Pelosi is leading the Democrats into disaster. If I have a historical comparison with Nancy Pelosi, it would either be Captain Ahab from Moby Dick or George Armstrong Custer from Custer's Last Stand. Uh, go ahead, guys. Follow me, and, uh, and they get absolutely wiped out. That's what's going to happen. That's Nancy Pelosi's legacy. This is 77 WABC, and this is the Dick Morris Show. He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump, and now he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the Nancy Pelosi will go down in history as the most, the, the least effective and the most destructive legislative leader in history. Uh, I don't mean of the country, I mean of her own party. She absolutely is leading her party into, into a self-inflicted genocide. That's what she keeps saying, walk this way to her. She doesn't say that when she says walk this way, it's an effect off a plank. But 
she's, she tells the Democrats in Congress, walk this way. Vote for uh, no photo ID, even though 80% of the country wants it. Vote for men uh, who declare themselves women winning championships and scholarships in women's sports, even though 80% oppose it. She tells them, walk this way and vote for legislation for taxpayer-funding gender chain surgery at $100,000 a shot. Again, roughly 80% oppose that. She says, walk this way, vote in favor of programs that in federal spending discriminate on grounds of race. Overtly say this program is only for people of color. And 85% of the public oppose that. So that's her theme. Walk this way, follow me. And historically, the role of a legislative leader is to protect her majority. And the way she does that, usually, insane ones do, is that they shield their members from having to cast unpopular votes. Uh, they uh, back in I worked in Albany back in the seventies. Worked for the Speaker Stanley Steingut, Democrat, and sorry, <laughs> and uh, in the uh, and the state Senate was controlled by the Republicans. So whenever there was a tough bill, Steingut would say to his members, "We're not going to vote on it until the Senate passes it, because I'm not going to make you cast an unpopular vote." unless the Senate's already passed it, which means A, the Republicans are on record as for it, so they can't kill you with it, and B, it's worth casting the vote because it's going to become a law. And the whole thing was no one-house bills come up for a vote in our chamber. And Pelosi's doing the exact and precise opposite. Every one of these bills she's passing has uh, will not pass the Senate, has not passed the Senate. And every one of the votes she's making her members cast are unpopular votes. They're votes that will kill them in the election. And they're votes they can't possibly defend. And, and when they're given a chance to flake away from those votes, Ted Cruz introduced some amendments and, uh, and, and Tom Cotton in the Senate uh, to the uh, omnibus bill, the infrastructure bill. And they said, we want photo ID. We don't want to defund the cops. We oppose critical race theory. And all of the so-called moderate Democrats voted against, voted with Cruz against their party's position. So when they're given a chance to cover their butts, they do it. But Pelosi's not giving them that chance. She's lining them up and saying, "Anybody here who doesn't support this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get them. I'm gonna throw them out of the caucus." Three votes, three votes in the House out of 435 is all she can afford to lose and still be able to pass a bill in the chamber. If three Democrats have the guts to stand up and say, we don't want this, she can't do it. So out of the, I think, 225 Democrats in Congress, 222 are complete puppets. They, they'll do anything she wants. And we can't find three independents who will really stand up for a principle. And that's okay, because all of those Democrats are going down all of those so-called moderate Democrats are going to lose. Now, if you look at this from the perspective of the Democratic Party, very few Democratic congressmen in African-American districts are going to lose uh, because they, they might lose primary fights, but they don't lose general elections. The Republican Party is gaining in strength among blacks, but it's still way back. Trump got only 12% of the black vote. Hispanics are different. We're on the verge of carrying Hispanics. It's about now about 50-50 outside of California. 
but um, with blacks, it's clear. So those guys are not going anywhere. They're not losing. About 50 members of Congress are black Democrats, and that's about a quarter of the total number of Democrats in the House, and they're not going to lose. The people who will lose are the white moderate Democrats who are the balance of power, and I believe they will lose big time. I think that there is a significant chance of an absolute wipeout of those black, of those white moderate Democrats. what's going to happen. We will rock them. And the people who will lose are the moderate Democrats. Uh, you got to look at it like, like you're in a college and there's a graduating class. The entire white graduating class of the Democratic Party is about to be wiped out uh, because they're all the freshman congressmen, the guys who just won a few years ago. They're the uh, new young members of the party. And they don't have much seniority, don't have much clout. They're in marginal districts, and Pelosi is making them cast votes that are basically suicidal. And they will all be wiped out. So where's the leadership of the Democratic Party going to come from? Uh, they do not have a strong bench. That's why they were stuck with uh, Biden as their candidate. Uh, they do not have strong replacements. And uh, they don't have any young members. Uh, they have a few like Buttigieg and stuff like that, but that's why there was such a lousy field of candidates in 2016, 2020, because they just don't have many good people, and now they'll have fewer because there'll be so many dead bodies uh, coming out of 2022, uh, dead Democrats. Uh, and Nancy Pelosi will have destroyed an entire generation of her party. Um, it's, 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 it's horrible. Um, Let's go to Carol in Yonkers. Hey, Carol. Yes. Thank you, sir, for taking my call. It's just I know you're busy and I have one question. Don't worry. My question is that I heard you say that probably take the House, maybe not the Senate, this and that. But these people cheat. No matter how much you vote and you vote for the, the Republican Party, these people cheat and they get away with it. Yep. My President Trump, he was winning. He went to sleep and yep. he woke up. And he lost, the, he, he lost the election. Yeah, well, let, let, the good question, Carol, and it's on everybody's mind, I'm sure, and I'm delighted that you verbalized it. The various states of the country, not the Democratic states, but the swing states and the red states, have passed laws requiring voter photo identification. And that is the absolute key step, that you have to show a photo ID in order to vote. And those laws are now in effect and on the books all over the country. The Democrats are trying to reverse that by federal legislation, H.R. 1 and S. 1, which would reverse that and make it illegal to require voter ID. But uh, the courts have not allowed those bills, the courts have not allowed that intervention to happen in Arizona. They stopped it. And it looks like H.R. 1 and S. 1 will die in the Senate. It looks like Manchin and Cinema are quite committed to voting against it and are committed to the filibuster. So it's not going to pass. So you will have photo ID laws on the, on, the, on the books. 
And I was talking to a woman named Christina Bob, who I uh, just was on the show with Rudy, works for Rudy, uh, on the audit issue. She's a lawyer. And she said, the issue is not the law. We now have the law, good laws in each of these states. It's enforcement. And what we have to do is to be sure that the Republicans win the Secretary of State office offices around the country. Nobody pays attention to the office of Secretary of State. Uh, I'll bet that there's nobody that can call in and tell me, no consulting Google, the name of the Secretary of State and the state that they live in. You can't. And nobody pays attention to the office. It's a ceremonial job. They, they're the keeper of the great seal of the state. The only thing they do is to uh, supervise elections. And, they, and therefore, the Democrats targeted them in 2018. And Soros put $6 million bucks into a group called iVote, whose job was to elect secretaries of state. Forget senators, forget governors, forget president, forget congressmen. Secretaries of state. And very few people spend any money running as secretary of state because it's such a ridiculous job and doesn't do anything, and it's not a stepping stone to anyone. So they were easy pickings. And in Georgia, not in Georgia, in uh, Arizona and Michigan, the, the Democrats defeated Republican incumbents in those offices, and they put in radical, crazy, left-wing nuts who were committed to stealing the elections. And they, in turn, appointed inspectors and vote counters and contracted with vote counting systems uh, that would guarantee that the Democrats would, win, would, quote, win the election. And what we have to do now is to stand up in those Secretary of State races. Now, in New York State, I do not believe Secretary of State is an elected office. Uh, I think it's appointed by the governor. And there'll probably be a Democratic governor. Probably, we'll talk about another show, but probably um, uh, Letitia James. But in other states, the swing states, we have a very good chance at electing Republicans. And if you are in the habit of making contributions, small ones, uh, to other candidates, look up and I'll let you know on the air the races for Secretary of State in the swing states. But everything really eventually depends on that. He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump, and now he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. And I'm wondering what it is I should do. So let me give you the four reasons that the Republicans are going to take Congress in 2022. Number one, they lost 2020 by only five seats in the House. A flip of three seats is enough to win the House. And the average change for an incumbent party, the president's party, is that they lose 30 seats, and we only need five. Secondly, the generic ballot which normally is, if it's going to be break-even, no change of seats, it'll be about plus two or plus three Democrat because of the way the lines are drawn. Uh, that's why, for example, we tend to lose the popular vote but more likely win the electoral vote because of the way the state lines are drawn and the way the population falls. Uh, and, uh, and in generic ballot, we're actually ahead by two and probably gaining. Uh, thirdly, it's a reapportionment year. Uh, 
and of the 50 states, 30 have Republican governors and Republican state legislatures, a trifecta. They have the governorship, the upper house, and the lower house, all three in Republican hands. And uh, the Democrats have 10. Uh, another 10 are chosen by commissions and nonpartisan groups, which is how they all should be, but they're not. So we're going to really make out big time in the reapportionment. And uh, every single seat is up for reapportionment because the census just came out. And you'll have some states that gain and some states that lose. But more importantly, within the states, you rejigger the lines because you're losing or you're gaining a seat. So, for example, Florida is going to gain a seat. And Florida has, I think, 33 or 34 congressmen. It doesn't really matter what the ratio is you're going to be able to redraw all 33 lines. And you can do that to give your party one or two or three extra seats in Florida and ditto in Texas and ditto in Arizona. The fourth reason that the Republicans are going to win the Congress is that Nancy Pelosi is making her members walk the plank by introducing all kinds of crazy left-wing bills. Men can win uh, women's girls' sports and walk away with the scholarships. Uh, taxpayers can have to pay for gender chain surgery. It costs over $100,000 a shot. That you don't need, that we prohibit photo ID for voting, make it illegal. And we prohibit signature verification on absentee ballots. Uh, laws that would never, ever pass uh, muster with the American people don't. They're going to be rejected in the Senate because of that but they passed the House, so all of these members are on record as voting for them and can be really used to kill them in the election. Let's go to Drew in Brooklyn. Hey, Drew. Uh, quick question. You said that you thought with Tisha James was going to be the next governor yep. of New York. Yep. Uh, why not the Congressman Selden? I think they, I, I'm expecting a huge white backlash against... Uh, anyone like Letitia James because of all of the negative stuff that we see happening every single day. I don't think it's primarily racial. I think it's partisan, but I get your point. Uh, Zeldin would be a good candidate. He would be a good governor, and I'd do everything I could to help him if he were the nominee. Um, I think that it is a reach to think that a Republican can win the governorship of New York. Uh, New York City has increased its share of the state population, according to the most recent census, from about 38 or 39% to 44%. And the suburbs are weaker, and upstate is pathetically weaker. And the normal Republican strongholds are totally outvoted. Uh, one of the, uh, when Hillary ran for the Senate, she had checked those census figures and she had access to the Census Bureau in an off year. And it was clear that New York City had changed and had increased its dominance in New York State. Most cities are losing population, but not New York. It went from about 8 million to about 9 million people, while New York State dropped about 1 million. So it's becoming a totally democratic state. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight, we shouldn't try, and we shouldn't go after it. And Zeldin would be a great candidate, and certainly the Democrats are vulnerable with Cuomo, and Letitia James is way too far to the left to win. 
but uh, I think she will win. Bear in mind, James isn't even a Democrat. She was elected on the Working Families Party, a left-wing fringe knockoff of the old Socialist Party. Um, let's go to Joe in Westchester. Hey, Joe. Hello, Mr. Morris. Good afternoon. With the release of this most recent census data that came out this week, what there did you do you see with regards to your comments regarding the upcoming elections and then future elections, both here in the state and then, of course, uh, more importantly, nationally with the presidency, the House and the Senate? Well, let me let me do nationally. Um, I think the big thing is the increase in the Hispanic vote. Um, two year, ten years ago. Hispanics were about 12% of the population, and blacks were 12%. Blacks are now 13%, and Hispanics are somewhere between 17 and 19%. So the, the rainbow coalition that Jesse Jackson set up now has one color that's predominant, and it's brown, and it's for the Latino-Hispanic vote, which is clearly becoming the jump ball in our politics. And in the Trump campaign, everybody was talking about we're going to gain among blacks and so on. I never felt that. And we, in fact, it went from 9% to 12%. But among Latinos, uh, we went from 26% to 36%. And uh, if you discount California, where the Latinos are very different from Texas, Arizona, Florida, and the rest of the country, because they've encountered much more racism, much more English-only stuff, and it's led to a fierce division between the races in California, but not so in Texas, not so in the other states. There they eat Tex-Mex food. The the culture is called Tex-Mex, uh, and they're much more accepted, and I think that they are furious, angry, mad, livid about the teardown of American statues, the defacing of America, the calls that America is a racist country and is a horrible place to be. And they're saying, hey, wait a minute. My ancestors almost died trying to come to this country. Um, I, I look back at my their old country and I see what a disaster it is. Don't you try to make America what my old country used to be. So they're voting Republican. And I think, therefore, that's going to be the major thing that's going to happen. Let's go to Gary in Staten Island. Hey, Gary, you're always reading my books. I am always reading. Um, <laughs> that's right, Mr. Morris. And uh, it's important that everybody uh, read your books. And I'm looking at part 10 of the Black Helicopter book, mm-hmm. Global Governance. Who would our bedfellows be? Rule of the Lilliputians. Yep. How tiny nations outvote us. The Jonathan Swift uh, Gulliver travel uh, <laughs> travels uh, a metaphor. You do you, you know? You, I don't know if you. I don't know if all the listeners. It. I don't know if all the listeners know Lilliputians, but in Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift is a big guy, and he counters these little people, Lilliputians. They're about four inches high, but there are a million of them. So he settles down for a nap because he doesn't figure they're a danger. And they tie him up, all little knots all over the place. And he can't get up, and that's the metaphor here. The fact of the matter is that the world is controlled by corrupt, tight, tyrannical dictatorships, not democracies. Um, you have the UN. Okay, there's one vote for China. That's That vote reflects a Politburo of about six guys that run the country. It says it's 1.4 billion people, but only six of them have any power. 
Then there's another vote that goes to Russia. That's one guy's power, um, speaking in the name of 150 million people. And by and by the time you, you have to dig way down the list before you get a populist state that's really a democracy. And then it's sort of not a democracy like Pakistan, which is about fifth on the list, I think, of world population. And these are not democracies. And when we're sitting with them and they have their name on a country place card in front of them and says, you're from Pakistan or you're from China or you're from some other country. You don't represent that country. You just represent two or three guys who are in charge of that country. The big exception is, of course, India, which I hope will become, uh, will replace China as the rising country in the world because India is a democracy, is free, and, uh, and that's wonderful. And right now, it's the second largest country in the world. China is at 1.4 billion. India is at 1.3 billion. The other day, I looked that up because China was saying, don't hold our carbon emissions against us. We can't do anything about it because we have so many people, we, we have to emit carbon. So I looked at the numbers, and India produces 6% of the world's carbon and has a population of 1.3 billion. China produces 27% and has a population of 1.4 billion. So how did they get away with it? I don't know. So um, so we have to, when we look at the idea of global governance, let's understand that we are putting ourselves at the mercy of terrible countries, horrible leaders, and basically bureaucrats and civil servants and experts who uh, dominate, and that's why they're pushing it in the first place. So Afghanistan wouldn't have fallen if it weren't for Trump. Trump is still the leader of the pack in the Republican Party. Pelosi is leading the Democratic Party into a disaster. And we will, we will rock you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.